We'd Like a Word. Welcome to part three of We'd Like a Word with me, Paul Waters. And me, Stephen Cogan again. <laughs> and Alan Parks from Scotland Hello. and Eamon Summers from Dublin. And we're talking about their stories, the April Dead and Dolly Considine's Hotel. There's a bit of Eamon's writing, actually, because you didn't choose this bit, Eamon. So then I wanted to read it because I liked it. Hold on, let me just get it up. The bit you chose had lots of swollen bellies and they were talking about women getting pregnant. But this is a different one. So Julian, your, your main character, he's in the hotel bar and it says, Julian's first customer was a large farmer type. His shirt was pulled so tight around his middle that the lips of his navel seemed to be stretching forward to suck on the cigarette burning in the ashtray. That made me smile. I quite, I quite like that. <laughs> and I thought, oh God, I'll be holding my stomach in if I'm ever having a drink with you again. <laughs> well, curiously, I was thinking about that section yesterday and, and thinking, actually, I could have cut that because it doesn't actually move the whole story forward. It was a little indulgence on my part. Well, which I enjoyed. And therefore, you have justified its place. So thank you, Paul. <laughs> well, I love the odd indulgences. You've got, you've got to have a few. That's the joy of being a writer, isn't it? You've got to have a few of those. And, and I like the, like, in your one, Alan, the sense of time, I found it quite subtle, like, you know, lightly scattered. It was hot. And it was like, oh, yeah, it was really hot back then. In the 70s, the summers were hot. Everyone's smoking, and, but not remarked upon. They did and drank. I mean, it's funny, even if you see things now like the Parkinson show, you know, they're all sitting smoking and, yes. and drinking. It's really, it just looks really strange now that mm. that was on TV, but at the time, you didn't even. A couple of episodes ago, we had the memoirist. Uh, we were talking about writing memoirs, and I was saying that um, I was thinking back to my teenage years and, and how difficult it was to get booze. My dad, sadly long dead now, I mean, he. He would have laughed in my face if I said to him, do you know, in the future, you'll be able to go to a petrol station and buy booze. He would have gone, what? You know, the only place you could get it when I was growing up was either in a pub or at the off-licence, which was invariably on the side of the pub, particularly on the more rural areas, like I came from down to sort of Lizard and Penwith and that sort of area, right down the end of Cornwall. Or were you made your own or you nicked it from your parents? Supermarkets, they didn't sell it there, none of that stuff. No, none of it. No, no. It, it, you literally couldn't get it except on licensed premises. That was the only place you could get it. And that, again, informs your story because you suddenly think, well, I can't have this person drunk and roaming around the streets. Where would he have got the booze from and things? You know, it's, it, so I had to come up with the whole conceit of him brewing his own ale just to get him drunk. It was, yeah. it was quite bizarre. <laughs> <laughs> but but haven't we all done that, Stephen? Maybe. Brewed our own beer and made our well, own wine. I mean, the, it's the, the mark of an Englishman, isn't it? I've got to say the elderflowers out at the moment. The old elderflower <laughs> cordials and champagnes. Yum, yum. Now then, Paul, can I interrupt proceedings just for a second? Because we've got to give the answer to last week's question, haven't we? We unusually did a competition last week. I know, unusually keen of us. And the thing is, we'll have to remember the question. It was something to do with Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, which yes. Ted It was set by Chaplin, Ted Chaplin, yeah. who worked on the film, and he set the question. All films generally, when they're being made, have a kind of code name for all the production slates and things like that, so people don't know what film is being made in what studio. And his question was, what was the code name? What was the special production name? for Indiana Jones 4. And, and he showed us some bits and pieces he had from the set as proof. He did. Oh, he also gave a clue. Oh, well, I'll tell you about the clue in a minute. So 
Janice Staines. Always good to get an entry from you, Janice. Thank you very much indeed. And she said there were two code names for the movie. Uh, one was Bandwagon and the other was Turbo. Now, Ted gave a very big clue, which was that the answer had five letters. So Janice naturally plumped for Turbo. However, that is not the answer we were looking for. It wasn't the one that was on all the stuff that Ted had in his, um, in his studio. So Jason Grubbs in the United States got the correct answer. He said, gentlemen, I don't know who he's talking to there. Anyway, somehow it came to us anyway. He said, gentlemen, the secret project name for Indiana Jones 4 was genre. But I much preferred Stephen's suggestion of awful Great episode, by the way. Best wishes, Jason Grubbs. So, Jason, he liked your suggestion, but he was right. It is genre. G-E-N-R-E. Oh, what does Jason win? Um, He wins our eternal gratitude for listening to the show. And he wins the standard um, prize. Which is nothing. Jason is listener of the month. Yeah, okay. And Janice is probably listener of the month, too, because she was very close. And we're not entirely sure that there weren't more than one project name. Well, but it, when we were it is possible. It is, it is possible, I suppose. But as he said, the one Ted was looking for and the one that was on all the gear that he had was genre. So well Indeed. done, Jason. Indeed. Now back to the programme with Eamon Summers and Alan Parks. Just go back to music. There was one band that I was expecting would pop up in some part of your book, Alan. So the Bay City Rollers. Yeah. I was very pleased that they didn't because they were <laughs> absolutely <laughs> terrible. Oh, God rest Les. God rest Les. <laughs> <laughs> I remember the Bay City Rollers were a big thing and people wore tartan and tartan gangs yeah. and all this sort of thing and long tartan scarves and oh, it was terrible. Why come they don't feature? Was that just you deciding to well, take away one been... of the worst aspects of the 70s? No, I mean, I actually like the Bay City Rollers. And... <sighs> If you read the book about them, it's one of the saddest books you'll ever read, actually. It's just a yeah. Um, If you're very much a Bay City Rollers fan, you might notice at the beginning of Bobby March, there's a little thing about Tam Payton that's in there. But basically, it was, weirdly, I think actually slightly later, I think they're about 74, 75, so they'll probably oh, just be okay. um, But, you know, I, I like the Bay City Rollers. You know, I think it's a bit like those ideas of what's good music and what's bad music. You know, music that teenage girls like is not considered proper by music critics. And it That's why drives... I was bracing myself for their arrival <laughs> in the story. <laughs> it slightly drives me bonkers because it's, you know, it's, you know, I worked in Red Company for a long, long time and there's still that idea that, you know, sort of grammar school boys making prog albums is proper music and, you know, and, and dance music or pop music or, or you know, is not as valuable, you know, and it's and it's the stuff that sells, and it's the stuff that's as hard to make as anything else, and it's it kind of drives you a bit bonkers. I was driven a little bit by the market in the seventies because I mean I'm, I think back now, and and there was such a huge difference between the singles charts and the album charts because yeah, the single was... chart with a one one off snappy, as you said, Bass City Rollers, David yeah. Cassidy, Abba, that sort of thing. Whereas the albums, that was your Dark Side of the Moon and your Tubular Bells and yeah, your you know forty yeah. minute waffle by Yes. I think probably Led Zeppelin and, 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 and Pink Floyd were kind of proud to say we don't release singles, you know, you have to listen to the whole album. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Which uh, it has, its, has its pluses, but at the same time, it's 
the balance needs to shift a little bit because, you know, those top records, you know, the Motown records, whatever, you know, are fantastic and probably age better than close to the age. Well, that's the other thing, isn't it? On the, with the nostalgia market, when you're when you're going to a school disco type event or you're yeah. going to some, even, even a wedding or something like that, it's those songs that are being played. It's the Dancing yeah. Queens. It's the dedicate, you know, dedication. It's, it's all those songs that are being played. They're not playing Tales from Topographic Oceans, are they? (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes it's music in these books is good because it takes people back. And it's those kind of records that immediately, it's not like, you know, the B-side of a pretty things, you know, video. It's just, you know, the big records, people always remember that they were on holiday in Spain and it was Una Paluma Black. You know, it's always kind of... Kicks them back very quickly, and it's, it's a even if they hated it, it takes them right yeah, back to that moment. It, yeah, yeah. yeah, because you heard it on the radio all the time. You know, and so you, as Alan, as you said, you worked in the music business. You have worked with some notorious hellraisers like Enya. <laughs> <laughs> Never mind these dodgy people that we were basing stuff on. Who we don't want to mention in in the, with all the torturey stuff. We need to hear some juicy stories about New Order or Enya. Poor. Or All Saints or anyone else? I, 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 I can't really tell those juicy stories because I'll get in trouble. But I'll tell you one story about New Order, which is kind of about the past, which is quite interesting. The Anton Corbett made a film uh, about Joy Division, which was a very beautiful kind of black and white, you know, Anton Corbin style, perfect film. And we went to the premiere and sort of watched it. And, and uh, Stephen, the drummer, we came out and he said, you know, and it looked like a kind of kitchen sink drama. It was very 50s. And he said, you know, it's so nuts. It was 1974. Everything was orange and brown and all different colours. And, you know, so it's, again, it's a different way of remembering because if you suddenly put it in black and white, it becomes more elegiac and a bit more nostalgic and a bit more, you know, it's kind of hard to, 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 to make it seem as serious when everything's, you know, all jazzy colours and, and different things. So the past, you know, that Anton Corbin version of their story, which... Is it's probably true as anyone else's version is not the one that they perhaps themselves remember, you know. So it's it's different ideas about the past and how people use them to see what they want to say, really. Really interesting about the colours, because the one thing that's really noticeable if you watch a lot of these sort of older films with Terence Stampin and people like yeah. this, you know, is, is the is the ghastly chocolate or avocado coloured bathroom suite and the, <laughs> and the and the bright orange kitchens and yeah. and Something that delights me immensely, because I, I, I love to cook, is looking at 1970s cookery books. And every <laughs> recipe, the photographs look horrendously horrible. Everything looks like it's been through someone's digestive system first. Yeah, which is kind of weird, because, you know, I sort of remember the 70s, so I sort of think, well, that's wrong, that's right. But when you get to the 60s and 50s, I don't know what was wrong or right. So I don't know what the, the view of it that we have now is, is actually particularly accurate or, or, you know, just something that's been kind of agreed upon to, to, to decide that's what it's like. Eamon, who no, we've got to bring have? Eamon in on this. Yeah, who, did you, who, who did you have coming into your shebeen who you can spill the dirt on? We had a couple of minor Fianna Fáil politicians who, who came in. Um, <laughs> I don't think that's going to cut it. <laughs> no. But Peter Bogdanovich was in, it was very close to the Gate Theatre in Dublin, the shebeen. I guess Peter was in Dublin working with the Gate and, and uh, Orson Welles. Orson Welles acted in the Gate Theatre and I, Peter Bogdanovich has since written a book about Orson Welles which is really interesting but the manager of the hotel decided that Peter was not in a state to drive his car away so 
I was told to go and move it. It was parked directly outside. I got into this Fiat 124 Special, which was a wonderful car, but I couldn't get it into reverse. So I had to drive around the block in order to get it into a, a garage at the back. And I was stopped by a guard who could see that I didn't know how to drive properly. And he asked me, was it my car? And could he see my license? And I said, no, it's not my car. I work for such and such a hotel. And he said, oh, that's all right, then go ahead. Which is just a mark of the reputation of this place, which was avoiding the, the licensing laws, which dictated that they, had, they couldn't serve drink to people in the hotel unless they were residents. And every night we had 200 residents, but we had no bedrooms. <laughs> so Orson Welles, was he a good tipper? Orson Welles, I never saw Orson Welles. I never made any tips. In fact, that's why I left, was because I approached the uh, owner, Dolly, as it were, and said, you know, I'm not earning enough money to live on. Can I have more money? And she said, but nobody else complains about um, the wages because um, they're made up by tips. I found I didn't get any tips at all. So I concluded that some of my colleagues were perhaps taking their own tips. Alan, I noticed in your biography that you spent a year watching films. I did. Were you in a video shop and you spent a, and you weren't doing much, so you spent a year watching two films a day? I didn't work in a video shop. The video shop opened and I was unemployed. And if you could get two videos out, as long as you brought them back before four o'clock for a pound. So every day you'd watch two videos. That's basically what I did for a year, yeah. And um, it wasn't even like the things you wanted to see. It was like, people don't, you know, young people, now, it was the one they had in, you know, that you could get out. It was like, oh, we don't have, you know, Chinatown, but we've got Monster Demolition Truck 6 or something, you know, so you'd end up with that. You just kind of go, oh, I'll watch it, you know, and then that's basically it. And it's kind of weird because in a strange way, it was actually quite a good thing to do. You kind of learn quite a lot. And it was very useful in, in, in the job I had because, you know, you learn about editing and, and, and how videos are, would be constructed and that sort of stuff and how music works with films and stuff. So it kind of had some use. I mean, I, I, it was me lying in my bum for a year, but it had some use. So then on the basis of this, what do you think is, what is your favourite film or what do you think is the best film of all time? Actually, it can be either of the 70s or of, of any time. The film called Fat City, a John Houston film about kind of a bunch of lowlifes, I suppose would be the word, in the sort of just outside LA in the, in the 70s that, that are trying to get boxing as Jeff Bridges. And that's a really good film. But when I was, God, probably 14, 15, there's a series on BBC Two called The Great American Cinema or something on a Sunday night. And they showed every single one of those films. They showed, you know, Electric Glide and Blue and Clyde, all those big 70s, you know, sort of new director's films. And I think at that formative age, that kind of sticks in your in your brain, really, you know. And you look at them now and basically nothing happens for an hour and a half. But, you know, that's, you'd never watch it now. But it kind of makes you a bit of a sensibility. So I think a lot of those films I really enjoy. I liked L.A. Confidential. I thought that was a really clever film, the way it was structured, because as I'm sure you know if you've read the book, it's like a nightmare of, of trying to keep track of what's going mm -hmm. on. And they managed to boil it all down and keep the essence of the book, but make it watchable and, and understandable. So Maybe I think even that... make it better. Well, <laughs> different, shall we say. <laughs> I've read and watched a few times. I find myself leaning towards the film 
maybe being a refinement. Of LA Confidential? Yeah, if that's not heretical to say. Well, I think it is actually, so I'd like to take that back. All right. Sorry about that. I can never <laughs> go back to LA. What no, about you, Eamon? Favourite film? I was uh, thinking about, oh, films that I absolutely loved in my teens. If, for instance, The Red Balloon, I thought was one of my all-time favourites, which is a, a short that I saw on Welsh TV in black and white. And it was only uh, years later that I realised that the balloon was actually red. <laughs> and the film looked awful in, in colour. I didn't like it at all. The Graduate, I think, was a great... I enjoyed The Graduate. I mean, when Alan was talking about TV series, I've never heard anyone refer to the drama series Country Matters. And you're all looking blankly at me. I don't know. It must have happened. It wasn't the BBC. It was one of the um, commercial channels. But it was Country Matters. They were all set in, in the UK. And they were dramas. I, I remember one, I think it was a, a postman. And he made all this weird sculpture out of bits of scrap metal and mounted them all over his garden. His wife was probably um, complaining about it. You'll be delighted to hear they're all on YouTube. Wow. 1972. Excellent. I want to ask you something else, Eamon. In your book, Julian, nothing terrible happens to Julian. He's a bit of a chancer and he's exploring his sexuality and being gay. Often in books, it seems like tragic things have to happen to gay people who come out and yes. they go through turmoil and you know, maybe they survive against the odds. Am I right in thinking that and that things are, are painted into difficulties or put up in challenges? I know that's what makes good stories. People have to overcome problems in that. But in, in yours, he doesn't. Interesting things happen, but he's kind of fine and he negotiates it fairly well. No terrible tragedy happens to that guy. Yes, and I think I deliberately set out to do to do that. I certainly didn't want the gay character to die. I think all of the literature that helped me to come out uh, and that I read in my early years, the gay character died or, had, as you say, had uh, some terrible problems. So I deliberately set out that that would not happen in, in this particular one, in this particular story. To me, it was a question of identity. And once someone said to me, well, it's not about the behaviour, it's about who you are rather than what you do. I was quite a, a practising Catholic, but in my early 20s, I guess I wasn't a practising Catholic by the time I came out, but I abided by the rules, as it were, and accepted that received wisdom was everybody has the same feelings. It's about whether you act on them or not. And I accepted that I had the feelings. I assumed everyone else did. And I chose or believed it was the right thing to do not to act on them. And Julian is the opposite of me in many ways. He acts on his feelings and is comfortable with it. I wanted him to be a kind of a free spirit, quite different from me, but inevitably he is like me in some ways, but um, a bit more adventurous. This is a case, as in with some writers, where they actually use the character almost as a proxy to live the life that you didn't live? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I didn't want to write a coming out story. I am bored with coming out stories. As as you say, Paul, they're, they're misery memoirs until we get to the and we're alienated and stuff like that from our parents and our community. And I'm not saying I'm not alienated from some of my family. And I'm not saying that everybody is 100% accepting, but I'm happy to lead my life. And uh, I've surrounded myself with good people and I'm a happy and well-adjusted person. Well, that's not quite true because you're a writer. 
So that means you can't be <laughs> oh, really true, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You must be some something of a tortured soul. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I think we're probably coming up to the end. So it's been lovely talking to Alan Parks, author of The April Dead, and to Eamon Summers, author of Dolly Considine's Hotel. Next time, we'll be talking to RJ McBrien, author of Reckless, and Shelley Weiner. And we'll be particularly looking at can men write from a woman's perspective, or vice versa. Until the next time, thank you very much for listening to We'd Like a Word with me, Paul Waters. And me, Stephen Colgan. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye.